0: Hello and welcome to Step Into Light. I'm Michelle Jones and I'm Laura Barton and this week we are talking about first and second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Philemon. Okay I forgot to look up how to pronounce that so I know the emphasis is on the end. It's a lot closer to Philemon than Philemon. I like to think that we're in an age where expressing and saying things the way you want to is acceptable. So I feel like however you can connect with the scriptures, you should. Okay, good. So the title in the come follow me manual is be thou an example of the believers. This is for October 28th through November 3rd. Now we have not yet explained the organization of the, of Paul's correspondence and the writings of Paul. Interestingly enough, There are many works by Paul that are organized not by chronological order and not by content, but by length. And so, at the beginning of his writings, we get his longest writings, and now we are coming to the end of them. So when you look at this and you go, oh my, we have four books today, it's literally going in order of length. And our last Philemon? Philemon. 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 Philemon is our shortest one. It's it's less than um, a page, and so have courage. We can we can get through all of this today. I
1: really appreciate that because when I first started and I counted up the chapters because that's how my daughter tracks it when we read is how many chapters. I was like fifteen chapters, but actually it was very doable.
0: Yes, these are and they're lovely. Now specifically, we have some interesting things. Um, first and Second Timothy and Titus are all letters written to Timothy and Titus from Paul and talking to them specifically as ecclesiastical leaders, as as their role as people that are leading specific organizations in the church in different places. And so when we talk about the sixth article of faith, that we believe in the same organization that existed in the primitive church, namely apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth. And you're wondering where in the scriptures we find that? The writings of Paul. We're here. Yeah, for sure. So um, here are some examples of that. And then the final letter is actually the only real personal um, one-on-one that is a very personal experience, which is kind of exceptional to Paul is what we get to end on. Well, and, and I also think it's interesting to
1: know and maybe make sense why these are the shorter um, letters or books that we have of Paul's writings is that these, um, although t- like it's kind of a hybrid because Timothy and Titus are both leaders in the church, nonetheless, it's a letter written specifically to them as opposed to some of the other letters which were written to the whole church, a to body a whole of group saints. of people. And so, you know, some of these things may seem like a little bit of housekeeping business, but that's because it was literally a personal letter to these leaders.
0: Absolutely. And so um, he starts us off talking about the um, purpose of the church. And one of the things that I think we need to focus on today is specifically talking about the culture that and the culture-bound behaviors that may exist at the same time because a lot of 1 Timothy talks about how to separate yourself from what the current culture is doing. And he reminds us that the church of Jesus Christ is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. The purpose of our message is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. And so he starts off stating and reminding everyone that Whatever is going on, whatever is happening, that the Church of Christ is not for the purpose of power, manipulation, um, but about love and a pure heart. And I really appreciate that about Paul and his teachings and what he's brought to the scriptures. Is He does an excellent job of maybe his big message for his life was not um, how to set forth certain doctrine. But he has done us very specific service by talking to us about how do not ever get confused that Christ is about love and his grace is sufficient for us. And here we have again him stating it at the very beginning of his letter to Timothy. And I appreciate that he teaches people like as we talk about
1: the cultural bounds, you know, we experience this in our day, too. And I, I appreciate Paul's example that he really starts with where they are. And it's always aspirational to move forward, but he acknowledges and recognizes that where they are and the context that they're living their life does have a powerful influence on um, the forward motion and maybe their specific path may be different than it would be for people in a different culture and that that's okay because there's a path for all of us. So rather than feeling a little like um, irritated or like bummed that it's referencing things that are not even relevant in my culture. I appreciate that even though like some of these things, whether it be with women or other things that those, that it doesn't matter where you're starting, that there's a path for you back to God. And Paul is being really wise in discerning that I think to help them start with exactly where they're
0: at. And I'm, I'm grateful that you actually started and shared that because I'm feeling with this winding up our discussions about Paul, some, some actual, you know, loss that I won't be able to spend as much time with Paul. (laughs) And I really am grateful for how much, um, learning I've had over the past few months about Paul and his life. And One of the things that you're specifically talking about is how good he is at meeting people at where where they are. He has stated, he said, if you are a Jew, I will meet you as a Jew. If you are a prisoner, I will meet you as a prisoner. He knows how to meet people where they're at and love them at that place. And I think about Paul and the transformation that happened in his life and that he really does strive to exemplify the Savior with his own choices in his own life, that it's really kind of miraculous to just reflect on him for a moment and what he's overcome in the past, as we've read for the past couple months. Again, reminded that he literally used to persecute and see Christians, he took joy in really persecuting them. And he has made this miraculous transformation because he recognizes the Savior. He loves the Savior. And what is so miraculous about reflecting on his life is all those bad choices that he made, which he actually states are bad choices, that he actually came from a bad place, that Christ has taken those experiences and transformed them to be part of his glory. That those experiences that Paul's had, because Paul gave him that broken heart and contrite spirit, he was able to transform Paul and use those experiences and all that diverse understanding and education and experiences that he had to be able to meet people where they're at, to be able to talk to Jews in the way he needed him to talk to Jews. And what a wonderful concept to think that our very own imperfections and sins and actual um, pasts that we may not love or appreciate as we may reflect on those choices, when we come to Christ, he can literally take those and magnify them and make them part of our glory if there is that change, that mighty change in you.
1: And I think that that can incorporate, can encompass so many things, whether it be sin or just perceived weakness that we have. Um, Earlier this week, we were talking about Maybe I feel like I'm just too emotional, or whatever. It may be what whatever I feel like is a limiting factor for my ability to be an effective ambassador for the Savior. That um, is not as we think it is, because like so in First Timothy chapter one, at the end, I um, Paul speaks about his own like transformation through grace. And he says, so starting in verse 12, I think Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me and enabled and grace. Like, I just think those are just help us to understand each other. Verse 13, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy. Verse 14 the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And I think you're exactly right that the Paul's ability that I admire and sort of find myself wanting to emulate, which is to meet people exactly where they are and to recognize that no matter where any of us are, we all have a path back to God, that he only had that perspective because of his own stuff that he had to walk through that was not maybe what we would think of as an ideal path for an apostle.
0: Absolutely. And he he finishes the phrase you just read, stating, Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. And then down just a couple verses later, he t- tells Timothy that because of this experience, he can turn to Timothy and be the person that Christ needs him to be for Timothy. And he said, according to these words that I've given you, that this will strengthen you, and that in verse 18, it will it will cause Timothy to be encouraged by these words that you may fight the good fight, which we've heard that scripture quoted before. Mm-hmm. And so what a great context to know that it is my own experiences. My own weaknesses that have become strengths, because I've turned to Christ and Christ has made them His strengths, and has made Him part them part of His glory, so that I can now turn to Timothy and tell him to fight the good fight and give him courage. That, yes, that's and, a great.
1: And that that the part of this grace and this enabling power, it's very powerful for sin, but I also believe it's very powerful for things that are. Our weaknesses and sometimes things that we perceive as a weakness can almost be a spiritual gift in disguise. Because I feel like one of the principles that I've tried to teach my kids when they get very frustrated with some of their qualities is that sometimes if you flip that upside down, it's actually a really amazing um, power or strength in your life. And part of it is learning to harness that and to discern that. And I think that the grace of our, of our Savior, can help us recognize that. So, for example, I brought up, and I'll just use myself on the chopping block, we brought up, like, let's say that I had, let's just say hypothetically, even though this is actually real, that I struggled with um, being a people pleaser and wanting to always make everybody else happy. That is so
0: hypothetical. Nobody does that. Yeah,
1: it's super hypothetical. So let's just pretend that someone had that, That is something that they struggled with and throwing that whole thing away, like part of it is very good, right? Some parts of it are based in love and my ability to sense and discern the needs of others Mm -hmm. so that I can meet those needs. Like that's taken a lifetime for me to like finally develop that gift where it went a little awry or where there was some distortion in it is this feeling of oh, I feel guilty, I should do this, I should do this, I should do this. And so it wasn't actually lifting me up, it was just being a burden. But, you know, through the Savior and his ability to help me to see things differently, it can transform and harness the parts of that that are incredibly beautiful and good, which is my ability to sense when others need things and to respond in love as directed by the Spirit, like that's an amazingly beautiful spiritual gift that I'm very thankful for, even though what was sitting in there beforehand was something that felt like such a big burden to me.
0: Absolutely, and I just need to take a moment to acknowledge how beautiful everything you just said was. Thank you. (laughs) So, but let's just flip it and reframe it and say, what if this was just Christ can make our weaknesses strengths? When we can see it in the framework you just gave us, Taking, acknowledging those weaknesses and saying, Christ, use me for your glory. You get to be not just changed because you think, oh, this is a, a skill I want to change or flip. He teaches you. He's part of you. He dwells inside of you and he magnifies you. That's a different way to approach it. Um, because it may not be just like a skill you need to learn. It may be him just changing you. It may be him just strengthening you. It may be him just coming in with his grace and changing you. And
1: and um, in, in addition to those verbs, which I like, also expanding us. Because sometimes I think of it as I think of a little child maybe, like if you think of a picture window. I don't know why I call it a picture window. That feels like really a long time ago, but a picture window and there's like a bunch of, like at the bakery and there's a bunch of sweets on the other side of the window and a little child might lean really close to the window and so they have this very specific perspective and sometimes I feel like what the Savior does isn't saying you're wrong, but he gently pulls us back so that we can see more of what his plan is and more of the picture and how that little piece that we're focusing on fits into the bigger hole.
0: And I think part of me is coming back to this concept of he can make our strengths or our weaknesses strengths, because when I've heard that scripture before, I have thought, yes, as I do the work, but really as I'm working really hard and as I'm qualifying myself for him to make my strengths or my weaknesses strengths, he will say, oh, yes, you put in all that work. I will good job. You've learned that skill. I will now make it a strength. Mm-hmm. But sometimes if we have these weaknesses and literally just turn ourselves over to Christ, instead of all our hard work doing it, it could just literally be his grace saying, you've had this experience and I can use you for my work and you have the desire to serve me because you recognize me as the savior And and here you go.
1: So instead of seeing these things as sort of prerequisites to get to the real stuff that we're looking for, we can step into that real stuff as we are doing the work of the Lord.
0: Right. And, I, and again, these things go hand in hand and there's nuances, but... It's always important to recognize, but the Christ, Christ will use you if you have the desire to serve him, which Paul is just such a great example of doing that. And so the interesting thing about Paul is he's willing to love, he's willing to serve. He, I mean, he's giving it all up for Christ and he's sitting in prisons and he has really turned over his life to Christ. And because he's done this, he gives us so many great examples. He doesn't just talk about how... I've changed through Christ and preached love. But he also says, if you're doing something wrong, I am pointing it out to you because I love you and Christ loves you. Let me teach you. And Joseph Smith has described Paul as a very short man, about five feet tall, but with the voice of a lion. And so you not, some of you may not know Michelle's height. Michelle, how, how, how tall are you? I am 5'3". So you've got it on Paul. Like, right. But Michelle is a little bit diminutive. She's t- small, but I remember meeting her and thinking she was like the tallest Paul per- tallest small person I've ever met. Like, I imagine Paul to be kind of like Michelle, like maybe in a little bit shorter package than me, but with the voice of a lion is how he's described. Paul has the voice of a lion that, I don't know what that means, it's but somebody bold. that is just... Yes, that takes up the presence that's put in front of them. And so that's what I think of with Paul. Five feet is pretty short. It is. So, um, but to think of him that way, I think is, is interesting. And he tells everybody here with the church. So we're in Ephesus now. Okay. And he's telling people in Ephesus that their prayers should look a certain way. And, those, and that way is focusing on Christ. Now, Ephesus, we've talked about it before, and you may not recall, but go back in your mind to maybe some Come Follow Me's in the past, where Paul goes to a large temple, and he upsets everyone because he causes a disarray in this large temple, and people make some real money off of the temples. This this story is in Ephesus. Ephesus is the center of the world for the cult of Artemis, or in Roman mythology, Diana. And is this the one where they had all the metal workers? That I think, would make I think that's dependents. how it was described. And so it's a big deal. This is a, a cult that's gone back for quite some time. People make a lot of money off of that when you become the center of the world for that. People are coming from all over the world to worship Artemis. Um, in fact, the Temple of Artemis is one of the ancient Seven Wonders of the World. On certain lists, sometimes there's discrepancies in lists. So, so this is so this is the context that 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 he's talking to the people of that time. This cult has been around for hundreds of years. So when we read, so we've now come to the part in First Timothy, Timothy, um, chapter two, which Michelle just mentioned earlier that there are some issues about just culturally bound differences between our society. Can we just state right now, if you read anything from 100 years ago, if you read anything from 30 years ago, our culture just now with the internet, I feel like it's changing faster and faster and faster. I mean, I talk to my my teenage children about things that I've never heard, that they're talking about things I've never heard before because I'm just not into what the latest thing is and that's only a, you know, a two decade discrepancy. So when you start going three decades ago, a hundred years ago, 2000 years ago, it's important to always read the scriptures in context with what is going on at the time. Not only will it give you context to maybe the laws of the time, but also the principle of what's behind it because otherwise we get distracted by Things that we are supposed to liken the scriptures to us, but if we don't discern between what is a cultural influence, it will be very hard for us to discern the actual principle that we're supposed to liken to us.
1: Yes, because as I was listening, so I was listening to these scriptures again this morning after I had already read through them with my pen in hand before, and There's something that's kind of nice about going through something quickly because you can pick up on overall themes better. And I've thought so many of these things, it's all talking about interactions. And in some ways, I don't know if this will resonate with you, Laura, but like reducing tension in interactions. Like um, in verse two, he says a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And that some of these cultural references that he makes in that time, again, meeting the people where they are, were about bringing unity and harmony into families and congregations.
0: Well, and he says in in verse 5 of chapter 2, there is one God and one intermediary between God and humanity, the human Christ Jesus. If you've had a cult to Artemis for hundreds of years, that is a hard concept to say guess what we've come in with this completely new concept not only that but but the cult of Artemis had priestesses they had women that told the stories of Artemis they had women again something that 2000 years ago was terrifying as far as statistics is women and childbirth we take it for granted we can go in and get an epidural But I mean, even a hundred years ago, the statistics of women dying in childbirth is just huge in comparison to now. They actually thought they had to worship Artemis in order to even survive childbirth. These are realities for them. They aren't the same realities for us. And so for them to come in and say Christ um, is who redeems everyone when they've been worshiping a woman goddess Artemis for a long time, that's... These are some real paradigm shifts. It's a big deal. And so when we get to this part, there's some really um, things that you could read as disconcerting and that people could misinterpret. But again, put them in context. I will say, for instance, this says in verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9, Women are to dress in appropriate dress with modesty and moderation, not with braided hair, gold pearls, and expensive clothing. So Michelle has braids in her hair right now, so... Just don't show up to church with those, you know what I'm saying? But I will tell you that I've seen the Artemis statue in from the temple. This is now a ruined site, but they have found many things and excavated that. And Diana had, or Artemis, Diana is the Roman goddess uh, that is Artemis, um, plated braids, lots of plated braids. Is it hard to draw the conclusion that this may actually be stating as opposed to the priestesses, and when I say priestesses, there were hundreds of women that would be involved with the temple. Maybe they showed their allegiance to Artemis wearing those braids. You know what I mean? So to to say, oh, I can't go to church with braids in my hair, which Michelle, you've done before. So I'm, I feel confident that you it is okay. Now, I will say we can liken this principle to ourselves easily. Once we've now discerned that... Because it seems like almost what
1: we're saying here is that part of what they're saying isn't that it's inherently not a good idea to braid your hair, that that is somehow showing that you are not holy, but rather that he's directing them to not model their behavior and appearance after these pagan gods.
0: And after anything that's contrary to Jesus Christ who we've now um, turned our attention to. So absolutely, as men and women of the Church of Jesus Christ, we can recognize that when we go to church, our reflection physically should not take away from what they say here um, to show allegiance to to God and and piety for God. Um, In fact, he says, why don't you adorn yourself with good works? So, and I will say that, you know, that could be, materialism could be something that our time period struggles with easily. That's very easy to say because it's just the accessibility of materials is different now. And as part of this, like we were
1: talking earlier about the the lower law, higher law, is part of this that the lower law are like the specific, like, don't braid your hair, don't do this, don't do that. Whereas the higher laws, well, why are you doing that? Absolutely. Because I mean, in that in their day there was um, Artemis, in our day there's like Instagram influencers who look kind of cute and what they're wearing. So if I buy that same dress and style it for church, does that mean that I'm following the pagan god of Instagram influencers? Not necessarily, depending on what my why is. Why am I doing it? What is my what intention? What your intention is. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: And so intention is definitely something that I would just think in context of all of this. And it even goes on to talk about Adam and Eve. And I, and I also want to state this. We believe the Bible to be the word of God as long as it's translated correctly. I think for all of us, as we read that article of faith, we think, okay, we got the Joseph Smith's translation, but there's still even that part that they're saying, you're still going to have to discern some of this. So remember that there may be even things in here that you go, you know what? That may not be translated correctly. And that's going to have to be between you and the Spirit and the Lord, right? And so I can't say for everything Joseph Smith's, there is an actual Joseph Smith translation that has corrected part of chapter two. Would you, do you know it? It's, it's just one answer.
1: word at the end because he talks about how, um, Adam was first formed and then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgression. And I think, you know, these are such simple, concise statements. And we've had a lot more expounded for us in modern day scripture, which is very helpful. Um, but one of the things, and then the next verse is where we see our Joseph Smith translation. The original, notwithstanding, she shall be saved and childbearing. The Joseph Smith translation makes it, notwithstanding, they shall be saved and childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety.
0: Which I think is actually an interesting change in the translation because, again, these are translations that have gone through many different hands. And many different hands can use... Constantine in 300, 400, I think, he came along, and I think it's pretty safe to speculate um, that he's he, it's asserted by historians that... Constantine saw Christianity as organizing people. He saw Christianity with one God and one, and this is when we got the Nicene Creed. So there is that one God and Jesus Christ and Holy Ghost became one, right? So this absolute power, this absolute monarchy, Constantine totally took that on and said, everybody be Christians because that'll make my absolute power even bigger. There are people that have, whose hands have gone through the Bible that I don't know if there may be some alternative motives with this. So to talk about Adam and Eve, you could even reassert, you know, that women have a certain position and men have a certain position, especially if you're coming from a context of a culture where Artemis was the great goddess and you want to shift the power over to someone else. So these are all things to think about, but I think it's interesting that Joseph Smith translated that, that, they will be saved in bearing children if they remain in faith reminding us that you it know we're not to. yeah we're not putting the blame on anyone here but it's interesting that the he had to actually translate that because again childbearing was something that was scary for them back then who know if they translated this to say you know what yeah. it's okay i mean you could say she will be saved in bearing children if she remains in faith you know what, you used to sat, you used to worship Artemis. Let's just shift this a little bit so you can... So it it just feels a little better. It feels a little bit like what you're used to. Like, I see those things as you read the scriptures. People can usually... T- they can actually manipulate the translation to just kind of make the culture feel a little better. And so these are all things to think about when we're looking at these translations. So it's very interesting to me that Joseph Smith specifically said with that one, no, it takes two. Yeah. And, and also whether it's the
1: translation or even why would Paul use that specific example? Well, given this culture that he's working within, that might be something that would stand out to them quickly, or that they could see as a very concrete example of something that they need to rely on the Savior for.
0: Absolutely. And so and so we go on through the rest of Timothy, um, where Timothy obviously is someone that Paul has a real affinity and love for. It's very sweet to see how he Encourages him and talks to him and gives him good words. We have here the calling of bishops and their characteristics. We also have qualifications for deacons, which in the Greek becomes very clear that a deacon is simply just another name. I think, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, we automatically think of that as a priesthood office, but it is a word here that simply means a servant of God and can actually apply to women and men. And then he goes on, I feel like. Um, specifically talking about some some more challenges that culturally are coming in ascetic tendencies among believers asceticism is where you really participate in physical self-denial and we know that as that we came to earth to receive a body and that although self-mastery is important um, this is this is something different where they would really be preaching um, where you maybe wouldn't eat for several days, thinking that that would give you a spiritual enlightenment, which there are principles behind these things that have meaning. We fast so that we can have spiritual enlightenment, but there's definitely an acknowledgement in in the Church of Jesus Christ that there's purpose behind this and our bodies are important, that our spirits can... um, can be in our bodies as masters, but that our bodies are important and not to dismiss that, which is what asceticism emphasizes, really.
1: Which almost seems like, ironically, it's taking a good principle and taking it to excess, which almost feels like the inverse of what that principle is, and yet we're taking these principles of self-mastery or fasting and just bringing it to under such a tight control.
0: Yeah, and, and, and it's a better example back in their time. Like I think now, really, when I sit there and I reflect on, do I need this purchase from Amazon? Or do I even want it? Either way, it's fine. Our instant gratification is an actual issue for us, where I could say, you know, we really need to think about that more in our day and time. But these are people that are already working hard physically. There are instant gratification isn't even a, a concept they would know anything about. These people are already, what would be compared to our time, more masterful in in the physical um, work that they do and and their spirits driving their behaviors. So to just really reject your body, that is a that's even a bigger discrepancy back then. So, so that's what he's saying. He's saying mostly stop being distracted from Christ. That's what he's saying. He's saying don't get into these um, behaviors and these sects and these cults that give you distractions to focus on. Yes, it's okay to have self-mastery, but not to the point where you're recognizing that Christ's power and love in your life. Is where your focus needs to be, and and so were you just in chapter four? Five? Yeah, that was chapter four.
1: Because before we move on from chapter four, I thought what blended well with that one of the things that I liked in uh, verse fourteen: neglect not the gift that is in thee. And I think, um, and then in verse fifteen, to meditate upon these things, and I really appreciated, you know, this invitation to step into our spiritual gifts and to really take the time to fully kind of take in these layers of meaning and how that also connects with following the savior. Because from some experience, the more that I focus on stepping into my spiritual gifts, meditating and following the spirit, the other things have a tendency to drop away or become easier to shed than they were before.
0: I'm pausing because I think everybody should think about that for a while. Yes. <laughs> That's very good. Okay, the exciting part that goes on in chapter four is where we get our quote for this week, for our title for Come, Follow Me. Be thou an example of the believers. Verse 12. In verse 12, my I'll read mine, and you tell me if your translation is any different from the Wayment translation. Okay. Do not permit anyone to look down on you because you are young. He's talking to Timothy, because apparently Timothy is young in age. And But... Be an example to the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Is it pretty close? Yeah, almost exactly. Okay. And I thought, okay, Paul is a great example of this. Be an example to the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And I remember reading this and thinking the young woman's um, theme kept coming to mind. My the beginning of it. The new one or the old one? The old one. We are daughters. Of
1: our Heavenly Father who loves us and we love Him. But to... to we will stand as witnesses of witnesses God at all times and, at all and in that all That part places is in the new th-
0: one still. And that's what kept coming to my mind. And I thought, how interesting that as I read this, the Young woman's Theme came to mind. That we, can, we said that every week. Okay, and this really incorporates all, our, our whole person.
1: Everything about us. I mean our spirit, our faith, our actions, our words, our purity which is like the way that we're living and I love how that ties into things that we've been talking about before about how one of the one of the things that we're trying to do here as we are learning to navigate this mortal body our spirit is and work together with it that we're trying to become whole and that as we bring this come become whole within ourselves then we can give our whole self following the Savior and to being an example of what the Savior needs us to be.
0: Right. And Paul is constantly preaching that. He says, anything that keeps you distracted, anything that takes you away from Christ and not just having an eye single to his glory is literally that, a distraction. And... and and he, he, he talked about the lower law and the higher law actually a lot in this. Um, and he said that the lower law are for people that need it. They are for people that are deceived. They are people that are sinners. They are people for... I mean, he went on and on and on and on about who needs the law. And it's not the people that have the broken heart and the contrite spirit because they will do the work because they have their eyes single to Christ. And so he's constantly trying to get people to say, yes, 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 do that. But don't do anything that distracts you from what's actually important. Because that's the real. Because if you have
1: yourself centered on the Savior, like I think that that's where we sometimes put the cart in front of the horse here, is that when we have ourselves centered on the Savior, you said our eye focused on him, when we are living by the Spirit, all of those works will follow. And sometimes we put the works first and focus everything on that, and of course we're frustrated. Of course we feel discouraged when we're doing that because we are putting in, we're just doing it out of order. And not that we can't, like it's, because of time, we're used to thinking of order as being sort of like a sequential chronological thing, but really when we speak of it being in order, we speak of like building the foundation of one thing which is our faith and our focus on the Savior. And then when the works are built upon there, it is a stabilizing thing for us and not like an unsteady topsy-turvy burden that we're trying to carry around same works. Well totally and let me let me just
0: let me just plug works a little bit because I think we keep talking about higher and lower laws and making the works not seem important, but there is this concept of Fake it until you make it. You can always do things from the outside in or from the inside out. I think the higher law is inside out. I think the lower law is outside in. And at the end of the day, we can become whole. But our con- if, if we're striving, you know, some days we may not feel that connection as well, and we need that outside in. We need the lower law some days just to get us up out of bed and do what we need to do. And so... Even though I think we it's very important to, for us to focus on the higher law, I, I feel like you know every once in a while we just don't want to dismiss obviously the importance of works that that helps us too well, and of course, part of that comes to, back to like the
1: the phrase by their fruits ye shall know them like if we are focused on the Savior, works will be there. we will be absolutely doing the Lord's work and so. And, and it's I, still an important part and of And I think our that's life.
0: what he's saying. He's saying people that that have that purity of heart don't recognize they're already doing the work, the capital T, the capital W. So just, you know, keep that perspective. And so he he ends Timothy um, talking about how it looks like it's the church welfare program at the end. So some of this is just logistics of organization of the church. And he emphasizes to respect the customs of the land, but know that as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can love each other on the same level. Because we're talking about a, a society that has a hierarchy. We're talking about masters and servants. And yet he says, yes, please keep respecting the laws of our land, but know that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And he said, so And at the end of chapter 6, or verse 11, it talks about as a person of God... Um, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and ki- kindness. Contend for the good fight of the faith, which I think in... Um, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. So I wanted to just take a moment to recognize that, that this is where we get fight the good fight, basically talking about the statements we just kind of made, that by focusing on Christ, we fight the good fight. And And then, and then I feel like this transitions
1: really well like in the first the the first chapter of second timothy which we're not even going to cover everything today and that's not a problem but this part i I feel like ties in with what we've been talking about this section um in our study manual is called god hath not given us the spirit of fear and he talks about how important it is to have unfeigned faith and we have some other concepts that have you know i think are will feel very familiar that god hath not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of the lord who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace i am not ashamed for i know in whom i have believed but i love this concept that god has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and love and a sound mind and what a great tool that has been for me in discernment and discerning if what I'm focusing on comes from the Lord or not.
0: Absolutely. And the spirit of fear is not of God. And so that's one way to fear, to, to discern. If we feel fear, it is time to stop, think about what's going on in your life and to refocusing on Christ and figure out how there's something that's going on that, that, so when we talk about discernment, that's, that's, A really nice key there and to
1: figure out how does God fit back into this equation because at some point he's gotten pushed to the side or his position has gotten distorted in some way because with Christ in his true position he carries the things that cause us to fear really they're all within his power and control
0: well and the interesting thing not surprising coming from Paul is this is kind of his last will and testament he, he knows he's about to die. So, so interesting that he knows he's about to die, literally, and his letter is about not having fear. Don't you just love that Paul, in the hardest circumstances, does exactly what you would go, that's hard to do. And instead of fear, he states, so in chapter 4, to connect with your, your verse, I, I'm thinking of chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. It states, I have competed well, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, a crown of righteousness is reserved for me. And then at the end of
1: verse 8, not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing or that love their Savior.
0: Okay, the confidence, the strength that I draw just from Paul's words to know that he's about to die. And he's like, how much confidence and security must you feel being able to say, I have competed well. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have a crown of righteousness reserved for me. You know you have lived a pure life. And you know that you have had your icing on to Christ's glory to, to state it like that. To know that after all we can do, it is by grace that we are saved. He knows that. He knows Christ. And I just want to point
1: out from the King James Version, just because I love it. I have fought a good fight, is how he phrases that in the King James Version. And isn't that the feeling that we all, or that I, that that is the feeling that I'm striving for, that when I'm finished with this life, and I lay down this armor that I've picked up to fight here in this life, and I return to my Savior, and I can lay my armor down at my feet because my my fight has been fought and I can say I have fought a good fight.
0: Yes, that visual is beautiful.
1: I've done what you asked me to do. Absolutely. And, and here I stand for whatever you
0: need next. So that's interesting to me before we leave Second Timothy to just reflect that there is in chapter 3 a time where he talks about the difficulty in the last days when he talks that we will be surrounded by people that are self-centered, lovers of money, boasters, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents. So I went ahead to chapter three, verse two. He goes on and on: ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unbending, sl- slanderers. Oh, this goes on. And usually I don't read this much, but um, the thing. But as you start reading, you recognize that this is really what our society is like. And something that is actually quoted in Joseph Smith history, he is in this part. It says, loving pleasure rather than loving God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And I just, you know, I have like Instagram and all these things, um, loving them, loving themselves, having the form of godliness, but not recognizing where it's coming from. Um, lovers of themselves, just literally people have Instagram accounts that are just about being lovers of themselves. I mean, having this form of godliness, but denying its power, when we are not connected with, with a higher power, because we are children of God, it's, it's a very disconcerting concept to think of people having the form of godliness but denying its power and being completely separated from that. The fact that they are actual children of God and just taking pleasure in being lovers of themselves instead of lovers of God. So I'm picturing like,
1: like a lifeboat, like how each of us can be like, a lifeboat and we're, or maybe lifeboat's not the right word, because we may think of that in terms of when the big ship's going down, you get in the lifeboat, but maybe this is just like an accompanying boat or there's a fleet or whatever. And if you were somehow tethered or attached to the lead or the guide ship, then you would be, you know, on your own, but also you're tethered to this um, where the master navigator is, who knows where you're going. And if you became untethered, you're still in a boat, you're still cruising along, and you may not even know that you're lost. And I, like, like I can picture that there are people in our day, they're in their boat, and they don't even know that there's this big ship with a navigator who can guide them exactly where they need to be going. But here's the problem. Not only do they not know about the navigator, they don't even know they're lost. So they, so, so, so they don't even know that they need a navigator.
0: So have you had Elder Ballard's talk, stay on the good ship Zion lately that you've heard? Um, well, no, but I have okay. heard it before. Okay, because that's all that's popping into my mind. He literally talks about staying on the boat. And he literally, so it's interesting that you've put it in that context because he talks about the same points you're making, but he talks about being the ch- church being that boat for safety, that that is where you can find safety that that I feel like ties into actually our reading at the end of this is how we stay tethered to that. But before we get there, let's move on to Titus. And, and um, Titus actually is another letter that reinforces First and Second Timothy, showing us that this is a letter to another ecclesiastical leader and that we do organize these areas through... Um, leadership and, and he, he reinforces those same let's call bis- bishops and let's call people to minister but the thing that I thought was interesting about this was that um, uh, he he talks about or you know what it, it was it was that somebody's genealogy is oh no it was actually second so Titus is very similar to first and second Timothy honestly and um, but I just wanted to point out before we move on from second Timothy, it's Timothy that he talks about his genealogy and his heritage. So Timothy is relatively young. Um he I, he had a Greek father and he had a a mother that was a Jewish Christian that was converted in her lifetime, right? So Timothy was raised as a Christian, which if you think about that's that, really that, that's unique. really interesting, yeah. right? And we do talk in these these letters do talk about how, being raised in Christianity and being taught Christianity from a long time does give you this nice foundation. But it was interesting to read about how women shouldn't be t- teaching in church in the context that we talked earlier, and then to in the very next book to have it actually start gl- by pointing out that righteous women make such a huge difference. And that's what's so interesting about Paul. We have all these um, writings that are taken out of context for maybe oppressing women, as history has used them for their will but he constantly is talking about righteous women and how powerful they are too it would be interesting to look at all the women he does this and so as he talks to Timothy and addresses him he says this in verse 5 of chapter 1 I'm reminded of your sincere faith Timothy a faith that first resided in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice I am now confident it resides in you and that and that the gifts of God that you have been given should, this is where he talks about not having fear, should give you that spirit of strength, of power, of love, and self-control. But isn't it so interesting that he said, I've seen this in your mom and I've seen this in your grandma. Those are good women that have, because, because you were raised by them. Don't forget that. And so so I thought that was an interesting little point to make. So those first few cha- those first few books really help us understand that concept that we have um, this organization of the church. So it's interesting to me that Philemon, yes, I did a good job Mm -hmm. to me is this great big analogy about Christ. So I read it in a way where this is um, a letter from Paul to Philemon about a runaway slave named Onesimus who Paul converted in prison. And this is, Philemon's um, slave but apparently Paul and Philemon were friends at one time and so Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon with a letter from Paul saying I know this man he is a changed man for me take him back and take him back in greater love very easy for me to see an analogy of how Paul was able to do for us as a mediator and ad, or do for this slave as a mediator and an advocate what Christ can do for us. Um, and so he talks specifically about how while this slave was separated from you, he has been converted. I am sending him back to you. He is my very heart. So when you take him back, don't even take him back the same as he was before, but take him back as a greater person that you love even more. I, it's, I just see the Savior as literally our advocate and our mediator, knowing that he's had this relationship with you, being able to say to the Father because of Christ, because of what I've done, I can say that this person has been converted, and is worthy because of my atonement.
1: And in verse 12, he says, therefore, receive him. And in connection with your analogy, I think that's really powerful. That do we not want to be partnered with the Savior so that in that day, that's what the Savior will say to our heavenly parents.
0: Well, and and really in conclusion, a lot of this is the conclusion of Paul's work. Isn't it so interesting that this is the end of what Paul really says to us, that his life exemplifies this, that he's been doing all this work for the church and running around and sending these letters so that we can be like Paul, so that we can be like Christ. And really, I'm just going to share this in conclusion. My thoughts keep going back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. This year I was introduced to the parable of the Good Samaritan in the light of the primitive church. So it was pointed out to me that in the primitive church, we have art history that's stained glass and early churches that actually assert that the Good Samaritan is kind of a parable about the plan of salvation, which really caught my attention this year because I thought, well, the Church of Jesus Christ recognizes the plan of salvation, but that's not like... Early, that's not like doctrine that the Catholic Church or anything really asserts. So it was really interesting to me when I found that there's like these actual parables in the early churches about the Good Samaritan being the plan of salvation. Have you ever heard of this? No. Oh, well, may I share then? Yes. So um, the Good Samaritan, there's a certain person that is going from Jerusalem to Jericho and is taken by thieves and is beat up. And I suppose a Levite and a priest pass by and just pass them by. But then the Samaritan comes, heals their wounds, loves them, takes them to an inn, and makes sure they're taken care of. So the parable is, if you've ever gone to, from Jerusalem to Jericho, there's actually where the elevation Elevation dramatically changes. There are dramatic elevation changes in, in Israel. So when you say coming from Jerusalem down to Jericho, it's literal. You go down. And so this certain person goes down. And along the way, they are taken by thieves. Sin. Evil. It beats us up. We get our bodies. We come down. But, oh, what our bodies go through. And and the, the real thing. Thievery of it all is taken sometimes. And you know what? It always kind of was hard for me to see the priest and the Levite go by. But in this analogy, I thought, a priest and a Levite can't help you. Christ is the only one that can help you forgive those sins. And so when the good Samaritan comes, he can. He can clean you up. He can heal your your sins, he can heal all of that hurt. But the interesting part at the end is that he then takes you to the inn, where he pays for everything, and he says, "You know, take care until I return." And in this in this parable, the inn is the church of Jesus Christ. So I just think. Paul worked so hard to make sure that that church that Christ takes you to is one that will take care of you until Christ returns. And, and he does such a great example of showing us what that looks like and trying so hard that if we represent Christ, let's represent Christ. It's a big It's a big deal. We took upon the name of Christ when we were baptized. The more literal we take that, the more powerful it will be and the more powerfully we can help Christ heal people. And so I say that with reverence because I really appreciate Paul. I appreciate Paul. A couple, a month, a few weeks ago, I was in Palmyra and I was looking at the Christus there. And so the Christus, the original Christus is in Copenhagen. And somebody was telling me the story about the original Christus in Copenhagen, which I'm familiar with it. I've seen it many times. The church re-released a video of it when they dedicated Rome and all the apostles were in Rome. That in itself was just such a big deal. And I had never heard this part, but it makes complete sense to me because I've already talked about how in art history you see Peter and Paul often. But I thought it was really sweet. They were pointing out that in Copenhagen you have the 12 apostles and Judas isn't one of them. Right,
1: but are there still twelve?
0: Yeah, there's twelve. But Paul,
1: I'm not gonna jump in because I <laughs> want to hear your. I just, thoughts. I
0: just am so grateful for all his hard work, even though he lived two thousand years ago. But. I just, you know, he deserves to be there, right? You don't know want, I mean, Judas, everybody is redeemable, but come on. And it's just interesting to think of it that way because, yeah, of course, Paul. That makes sense, right? But Paul really fought the good fight, you know? And there's so many people that have gone before us that have done that.
1: And they've laid the foundation so that we can take up our armor. From where they've left it and yeah. carry on.
0: So I think I'm just really appreciating all those people that have seen this vision and have made the inn what it is for me. Have have been innkeepers for me. Because if they didn't do that, if Paul didn't do that, if Joseph Smith did not do what he did, these people have sacrificed so much.
1: And And how would we know where to turn for peace without that. Yeah. Also, I now have a new favorite parable. So thank you, Laura.
0: Yeah, well, I love spending time with you doing Come Follow Me. And apparently if we go long enough, you'll get me to cry. So. Yes. Okay. excellent. <laughs> so see you next week. Thank you, Laura.